nationally, we have the Endangered Species Act. Uh, however, internationally, countries have come together and agreed that certain species uh, need to be protected. We have CITES, the uh, Convention on the International uh, Trade of Endangered Species, and uh, it's a relatively effective international mechanism whereby countries agree to essentially protect various uh, species and uh, flora, fauna that are on the brink of uh, extinction or at least threat. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for being here. I'm Craig Williams from very sunny Southern California. My co-host, Bob Ambrosi, can't be with us today, so I'm flying solo. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. And we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers, goclio.com, and Firm Manager from LexisNexis at myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. The latest reports on endangered species are alarming. According to the World Wildlife Fund, the population of wild tigers is at an all-time low. Just 3,200 survive. The news is worse for the wild panda. Less than 1,600 are left in the wild. In a prominent environmental group, WildAid says an estimated one-third of open ocean sharks are currently threatened with extinctions. The statistics can go on and on. Here locally in Southern California, we have about 328 peninsular bighorn sheep that remain in the area, a species that's dangerously close to the brink of extinction. Well, right now on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're taking a look at the legal battles to save so many creatures that are on the verge of extinction. And our guest today is David Cracky. David is an attorney at Nichols Associates in Portland, Oregon. His practice focuses primarily on representation of individuals suffering from traumatic brain injury, general business litigation, and personal injury representation. But David is also very involved in the protection of endangered species in the environment, and he sits on the International Board of Wild Aid. You can find more at wildaid.org. And welcome to the show, David. Thank you very much, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, let's start off the show by talking about WildAid, how you got involved with endangered species law. I've heard that you've got a very interesting story about a rhino. Well, it, it actually is. It was uh, completely unexpected. But uh, back when I was 25, so you know, about half my life ago, had the great opportunity to travel around the world uh, for about a year. And part of my travels took me to Nepal. And uh, at one point, I was down in the uh, southern area of Nepal in a game preserve, a game park, uh, called Chitwan. And, well, essentially hiking through Chitwan with two of my friends and, and a guide, we were charged by a rhino. And it was completely unexpected. The guide, of course, took off much faster than my two friends and I could and uh, left us scrambling for trees as the rhino was charging through the brush at us. And uh, the only tree I could find had spikes that I like to think of about an inch uh, in diameter and about an inch out from the uh, trunk of the tree. Uh, but it was all I had. It was this. It was the uh, tree with spikes or the rhino horn, and I decided to go ahead and climb the tree and get out of the way of the rhino. Uh, that, that does not sound a lot of fun. <laughs> it 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 uh, was not a lot of fun at the time, but looking back, it certainly is one of those life memories that's uh, pretty incredible. 
And from there, I uh, looked into more about what was going on with uh, rhino preserves at that point. Uh, the, this was, again, 25 years ago. Rhinos were uh, critically endangered back then, much as they are today. And uh, from there, I learned more, uh, developed a keener interest in endangered species law in general, and uh, from then went to law school, went to Lewis and Clark Law School with their environmental law program. Uh, finally, also did uh, a semester at the University of Nairobi in Kenya, where I was very fortunate to study with Dr. Romo Bolska, who was the executive secretariat of the Montreal Protocol. That's the protocol that has uh, uh, reduced the use of ozone-depleting substances, and we're actually seeing some progress with regard to the ozone hole, which is uh, how I also learned of the importance and the potential effectiveness of international treaties uh, in uh, combating very serious environmental problems. Well, tell us how uh, international treaties relate to in- endangered species. Well, as you are aware, uh, Craig, we have nationally, we have the Endangered Species Act. Uh, however, internationally, countries have come together and agreed that certain species uh, need to be protected. We have CITES, the uh, Convention on the International uh, Trade of Endangered Species, and uh, it's a relatively effective international mechanism whereby countries agree to essentially protect various uh, species and uh, flora, fauna that are on the brink of uh, extinction or at least threatened. And we have a version of that uh, treaty here in the United States, the Federal Endangered Species Act, and many states have individual uh, Endangered Species Act, California being one of those states. And, and my recollection of the uh, Federal Endangered Species Act is generally is that, uh, likewise, it's designed to protect endangered species, create habitat, identify that habitat, and keep people away from it so that um, the animals have an opportunity, animals, flora, and fauna, as you mentioned, have a an opportunity to flourish and not be uh, harassed, on, I think it's the term under the law, by, uh, by people. That's, that's correct. And uh, for the most part, it's been a very effective law. Uh, it's, uh, you know, in some circles, it's controversial. I, obviously, I don't believe so. Uh, my, how I became involved with wild aid, uh, essentially, is uh, with the question of uh, the ability to hunt a species to, uh, to deplete, to reduce its habitat to where it becomes threatened or, uh, and or endangered versus the big question of extinction. And where you're talking about extinction, uh, where a species no longer exists, uh, at that point it seems to me that uh, any law designed to prevent that is a good thing. Well, give us a little bit of background about wild aid. I understand uh, you've got a big accomplishment this year. The first of the year, it's legal now to possess, sell, or trade shark fins in Oregon. Let us know how that's working. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's that's uh, definitely a big success. Oregon, uh, fortunately, is not the only state uh, uh, that has such a ban. Uh, Washington, Hawaii, uh, Guam, and now California uh, have similar bans. It's uh, been a wonderful string of uh, success. Uh, for all of the groups that have been uh, working toward that goal, including wild aid. Wild aid is unique among uh, environmental groups in that it is essentially the only, or at least the, the main, group that is out there that is addressing the demand side of the endangered species uh, problem. The uh, line that we say at wild aid is, when the buying stops, the killing can too. And essentially, uh, for about 20 years of my earlier career, I worked with uh, other environmental groups uh, with a group called, uh, or a 
rhino preserve out of Africa called Lewa, L-E-W-A, with a group up here in Portland called the Rhino Trust. And we were essentially working towards the protection side of uh, the endangered species uh, question, particularly with rhinos in that instance. We were putting up fences around thousands of acres of African uh, land, which which fences are still in place. Uh, We were providing uh, armed guards that were uh, anti-poaching units that were out there looking for poachers, helicopters, uh, vet services, tracking uh, services, things along those lines. That being said, uh, two years ago, we had our first two poaching deaths on Lewa's property, and it was a real eye-opener. If we don't do something about the demand for these endangered species parts, we can protect and protect and protect, but ultimately that's not going to work. Uh, Wild Aid, when I became aware of them, uh, I recognized immediately that their model was the model that had to, had to be successful in order to be successful in the uh, preservation of species throughout the world. Uh, we have some wonderful people. Peter Knights is the executive director in the U.S., uh, Rob Sinclair, the executive director up in Canada, uh, people throughout China, throughout the world. We uh, have many celebrity uh, uh, supporters, including in China, uh, Jackie Chan, Yao Ming, uh, various other athletes and uh, entertainers over there. Uh, we have Richard Branson in the U.K., uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in the United States, all of whom have devoted and volunteered their time so graciously and their efforts uh, to get the word out that we have to stop the demand for these endangered species. Uh, we currently reach, believe it or not, every week in China, approximately one billion people through our public service announcements, whether they be television, in airports, on billboards, uh, in cabs. Uh, we reach another 500 million every week in India. And as a result, we are starting to see some very significant uh, societal change with regard to people's opinions uh, regarding these very important issues. In other words, people in those cultures that have traditionally used the endangered species parts are now aware that they can no longer go, uh, can no longer continue uh, with those practices uh, because those practices are in fact leading to the extinction of the very species that they're consuming. Let's let's talk a bit about that. There is a a kind of a spotlight that's falling on China and other Asian countries, especially when it comes to the use of shark fins. Um, I understand that it's used for shark fin soup, believed to be to bring good fortune. So what's happening here? Is this a is this culture that something that's part of uh, the loss of this species or is there a way to change this culture? Well, the first question, yes, it is absolutely culture. It's tradition. It's culture. As you said, shark fin soup uh, was generally recognized as doing a couple of things. It showed the wealth of the host, the wealth of the person who was serving the soup. Uh, it's not an inexpensive dish. It also was meant to bring good fortune to those who uh, ate the soup. Uh, as a result, uh, there, was a, there is a very significant demand for shark fin. Now, the problem is, is that we estimate that between approximately 73 million sharks are pulled out of the ocean every year. Their fins are cut off. The bodies are then thrown back into the ocean where they either are eaten by other predators or they drown. Uh, And this is done without regard for uh, population studies of any given species, for species viability, and certainly the bigger question, without any regard for the extinction 
And as you pointed out earlier, uh, we believe that up to one-third of the shark species are imperiled at this point. We have taken steps in the United States uh, along the entire West Coast now to ban shark fin soup, to say you can no longer do this. Essentially, we are saying to those people who would uh, follow this culture, this tradition, that you can't do it, the cost is too great, you're going to have to go somewhere else. Uh, back about a year and a half ago, the Monterey Bay Aquarium did a poll and in, down in California, and they found that 76% of the population supported the ban uh, on shark fin soup. And within the Chinese-American community, 70% supported the ban. What I'm getting at is that we have tremendous uh, support for this type of action uh, among the Chinese uh, and uh, other Asian uh, populations. Uh, problem is that there is still a significant number of people, even though the percentage of the population is not as much, there's still a significant number of people who I guess don't understand. I hope to, you know, I hope it's not the case that they don't care, uh, that extinction may happen. I wrote a recent opinion piece in our local newspaper up here and stated that, uh, the tradition, the culture of eating shark fin soup is going to stop one of two ways, either voluntarily, uh, by the people who uh, by the people saying, essentially, I will no longer uh, eat this, or out of necessity when there are no more shark fins available. Uh, that argument applies with the ingestion of rhino horn, uh, tiger parts, as you said, which are incredibly imperiled right now. And so we are asking with the shark fin ban, not only the specific question with regard to shark fin soup, but also the bigger question. What is it going to take for the people who would otherwise ingest or use these endangered species parts to stop doing so. Because again, when the buying stops, the killing can too. Well, and there's also a problem of poaching of bears in California. Uh, and apparently that's driven by money in the market. What What is the story there and how do you go about stopping that? We're seeing poaching of various species, bears in, included, all throughout the United States. And while the poaching itself is uh, uh, not necessarily done by the end users, in fact, it's almost always uh, is done by someone living in the country. Uh, it is uh, nonetheless driven by greed, driven by them by money, and we're finding bears with uh, various body parts hacked off, with various internal organs gone, and then immediately shipped over to uh, Asia uh, for their consumption. Uh, enforcement, as you're aware, Craig, is difficult. Uh, you can't. We have enough budget problems as it is. Uh, the uh, penalties sometimes, in my mind at least, are not nearly as uh, strict as they need to be. And so again, it is largely driven by demand. We can't necessarily stop uh, poachers in the Northwest Forest, down in the California Forest, from uh, doing what they do, but we know they would not do it if there were no market for the parts that they're poaching. So we're, uh, again, we're looking again at the demand side rather than at the very difficult uh, protection side. And there was a piece on 60 Minutes about ranches that it raise endangered species for hunting that is commonly called canned hunting. And they say that the revenue from that hunting lets them raise endangered species, so therefore they don't go extinct. This is apparently happening in Texas and some other places. Can you give some description of what the issues are there as well? You know, uh, that was a very provocative piece. I saw it as well. It was last Sunday. Uh, so end of January uh, 2012, and it really has raised some very significant issues. Uh, canned hunting uh, is essentially where exotic species are raised on these vast ranches, typically in 
uh, the south of the United States, Texas, uh, throughout the south, other uh, southern states. And these are species that, quite frankly, would otherwise be extinct. And so they are being raised, and they are being raised in predator-free environments other than the humans. And so humans are paying, hunters are paying uh, significant amounts of money to go in and uh, hunt these exotic species. That on its face sounds incredibly cruel, incredibly uh, indifferent uh, to the fact that these are endangered species. On the same side, uh, these same uh, ranches are quite frankly, responsible for repopulation of certain species that would otherwise be extinct if they were uh, in the wild in Africa. The uh, environmental group that was uh, being uh, uh, kind of out, uh, shown in that, in that report uh, promoted the fact that they wanted to have all of these animals return to Africa. My concern at that point is, as you take these exotics, drop them into Africa, their native habitat, and what would their survival rate be there? Uh, the, the ranchers in Texas, they limit their uh, taking to 10% of their population. If there's a 15% uh, growth based on uh, just the mating habits of these endangered species, you have a net 5% gain per year. Uh, if these species were in Africa, then arguably they would uh, not survive. Now, I want to be clear, this is, you know, what I'm saying here is just kind of analyzing it because it is a complicated question. Wild Aid does not have a position on this because it's kind of outside of our uh, mission, uh, but it is nonetheless provocative. Uh, the people I've talked to up here, some of them say, look, without those canned hunting outfits, you wouldn't have certain species. The other side is, what good is an endangered species if it's in, within a caged environment or you know a fenced environment in uh, the state of Texas? Uh, I don't have an answer for it, but I do know that I think that the existence of these species is better than the non-existent. Well, and how does the law apply to canned hunting situations? I mean, you know, in endangered species, it is endangered species no matter where it is, or is it different on private property? Well, according to the report, it is different on pri- private property, and once those uh, exotics, as they're called, are obtained by those ranchers, those ranchers have the right to do with them as, as they want. Uh, the kind of the tragic, uh, one of the tragic comments that was made by one of the ranchers is that if this market, as it's arguably being proposed, if it's uh, outlawed, uh, they will have zero incentive to uh, maintain these populations. And the one rancher that was interviewed uh, suggested that if that were the case, that the population at his ranch would be uh, essentially depleted to nothing within about five or ten years. Uh, The law, it's my understanding that the Endangered Species Act does not prevent these operations currently from existing and uh, uh, therefore they fall into what some might consider a loophole that needs to be closed, whereas, as the ranchers will say, they uh, are providing existence for these species that otherwise would be extinct. Other than the Endangered Species Act and the Individual States Endangered Species Act, and as you mentioned, the the International Act, do you know of any other legislative efforts that are presently happening to protect endangered species? as a matter of fact, I do, and this is uh, some good news. We uh, on our website at wildaid.org, I urge all the listeners to please uh, go to that website to read more about our mission. We, as of yesterday, we just learned that a uh, shark fin ban is being proposed in Illinois. Uh, a shark fin ban was recently proposed uh, in Virginia. Uh, we have word that Florida and New York are considering uh, similar shark fin bans. Now, shark fin is, in my mind, it's a it's kind of the tip or kind of a tip of the spear or it's a wedge uh, uh, issue. It's a wedge uh, 
piece of legislation. It is hopefully opening up the question, okay, we're doing this for sharks. What do we do now for the others, for the tigers, for the pandas, for the rhinos, uh, for the various bear species, for the, the other big cats? Uh, I think it's, it's just a wonderful awakening that we're seeing right now. Uh, the West Coast largely was the leader on this. Uh, we are seeing uh, similar uh, bills, like I said, now along the East Coast. And what I truly hope is that, and in fact, we're working with some uh, legislators uh, back in Washington, D.C., that we will consider federal legislation uh, to ban shark fin uh, possession trade and sale uh, all throughout the United States. You know, I know that it's, in some respects, somewhat of an esoteric issue. The um, vast majority of the listeners will never have tried shark fin soup, probably don't even know about shark fin soup. But that being said, there still are population centers within the United States who are using, uh, who are selling, trading shark fin uh, soup. And it, like, I, like we've discussed earlier, it has uh, some significant cultural importance among certain groups. Well, it's time for us to take a short break. We'll have much more on the legal fight to save endangered species when Lawyer to Lawyer returns right after this. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing? I think the most important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software, and they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind them. So I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the the excitement is they're now able to realize the, the potential of IT without all of the headaches. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. If you're like many solo and small firm attorneys, it can be challenging to manage both your practice and give your clients the attention they need. Well, now you can do it all free for 30 days with LexisNexis Firm Manager. Built from the ground up for attorneys like you, it's an easy way to get organized, master your business, and keep your clients happy. Firm Manager is secure, web-based, and mobile, so you can manage your practice anytime, anywhere, from your laptop, smartphone, iPad, or tablet. No IT hassles, no long-term commitments, and best of all, no more worries about what needs to be done. Get your free 30-day trial of LexisNexis Firm Manager today at firmmanager.com LTN. That's firmmanager.com LTN. 
We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. Let's get back to our discussion on endangered species law with our guest, David Cracky, who sits on the International Board of Wild Aid. Well, David, you know, we've talked about some of the, the problems, but let's talk about what the hopes are. Are you optimistic about the protection of these animals? And, and what can someone who's listening to this podcast do individually to help protect endangered species? You know, Craig, I ultimately am an optimist. I wouldn't be doing this, I don't think, if I weren't. Uh, I have seen uh, the success of uh, various legislation, both, both nationally and internationally, uh, in my legal, during my legal career. I believe that it is not too late. You know, it is certainly an imminent threat. It is, as I was uh, explaining yesterday to a friend, it is not an issue that we can afford to sit back and hope someone else takes care of. Uh, we, this generation, right now, we have the moral, ethical obligation to ensure that uh, as many species uh, survive as possible through essentially one of the great mass extinctions that we are currently living through. It's maybe not a well-known fact, but uh, uh, we are truly in the in the midst of a great mass extinction, both for flora and fauna, and it's a tragedy. Uh, I, however, do believe that the power of the law can influence uh, what is going on, but at the same time, it also has to happen in the hearts and minds of those people who are currently ingesting, who are currently buying the endangered species products. Uh, we primarily find uh, the ones that we're talking about today with the rhinos, the tigers, the big cats, uh, the sharks. We find uh, primarily that uh, demand coming from uh, Asian uh, countries such as China and Vietnam. Uh, for instance, just a few years back, we had a uh, minister in Vietnam who claimed that he was uh, cured of cancer by ingesting rhino horn. Uh, that type of false information is driving a belief that more rhino horn needs to be ingested. What we at Wild Aid are trying to do is to counter that false information with the reality of the situation, that the animals, these large animals especially, are critically imperiled. They're on the brink of extinction. That's why we have enlisted, and that's why we have the great support of for instance, as I've said earlier, Yao Ming, Jackie Chan, Leonardo DiCaprio, and many others, people who the public will listen to. We are reaching 1.5 billion people per week just in the two countries that I, uh, that I mentioned, China and India. And this how do you do have, that? Do you do that radio, television? What's the methodology and, and what does that cost you? Believe it or not, we have, not only with our celebrity endorsers, we have an incredible group of behind-the-scenes uh, endorsers, people who are skilled in direction, production, uh, writing, you name it, distribution of all sorts of media messages. We do it with uh, radio ads, with television, with uh, PSAs, public service announcements at airports, uh, billboards. We have some of the most talented and creative uh, television commercial uh, producers and directors who have volunteered their time. Uh, along with these athletes and other uh, entertainers, they have all volunteered their time. It is a tremendous collaboration of absolutely wonderful and 
uh, very well-meaning individuals, and it is working. We are changing opinion in China, in India, in other cultures. We are seeing an understanding of the problem, and we are seeing at least some uh, movement towards a reduction in demand, and it's very rewarding. And that's why I'm not going to give up. I know that the good people, my, my colleagues at Wild Aid, we are not going to give up. There are many other organizations in this country who are uh, working towards similar goals, and I guarantee you they're not going to give up either. So ultimately, yes, I am an optimist, and I believe that uh, this uh, battle, if you'll call it that, can be won, and uh, hopefully it will be won before we lose uh, too many of the great species. And what kind of funding do you need to, to accomplish this? It sounds pretty expensive. Well, like I said, a lot of our work is uh, performed by volunteers or people who donate their time and considerable skills. But you're right. There is always the need for, uh, for funding. And for that, we look to the public. We look to people such as your listeners. If anyone out there hearing this interview is uh, so inclined, I absolutely urge them to log on to WildAid dot org, W-I-L-D-A-I-D dot org, and to donate. Uh, we'll accept donations of any size, obviously. Uh, we, uh, we do need money. We do need money always. Every organization with this type of uh, incredible mission uh, needs money. And uh, uh, anybody who wants to be part of the solution, I highly encourage them to go ahead and, and uh, log on and make a donation to us. What other organizations are you aware of that help fight for endangered species? There are uh, many organizations. Uh, the uh, Humane Society uh, of the United States and their various state chapters, uh, World Wildlife Fund, Nature Conservancy, uh, just to name a few. One of my uh, favorite organizations that's uh, working on habitat restoration uh, is the Green Belt Movement. Uh, that's Wangari Matai's, uh who uh, passed away. You may recognize her name. She won the Nobel Prize back in 2004, and coincidentally, I was had the tremendous honor of meeting uh, Wangari back in uh, 1987 or 1988 when I was studying at the University of Nairobi, just happened to uh, meet her through one of the professors. Uh, so there are a number of organizations that uh, I think are doing just tremendous work out there. That being said, uh, Wild Aid is the leader in uh, addressing the demand side of the endangered species question, which, as I explained, is where I really think the uh, answer lies. Great. Well, it's just about time for us to wrap up and get your final thoughts. So um, I'll let you go with that and kind of give a summary of what you've um, what you believe we've discussed or where you think we're going. Thanks, Craig. I, you know, again, I think that uh, your your question about being an optimist is uh, really a fundamental question. I think that all of us out here need to be optimists that we can't look at a problem as severe as this and say there's nothing we can do. Uh, I do you know, a lot of volunteer work, uh, donating a lot of my time towards this effort, towards this cause, because it's, it's important to do so. I urge anyone out there who's interested to contact Wild Aid to make a financial donation if they can. But more importantly, if there's something that you want to get involved with, go ahead and do it. If you're living in a state and you have some legislative experience, consider a uh, a ban on shark fin uh, within that state. Uh, contact a local legislator. Uh, do what you need to do. We have the bills that have been passed. They're very straightforward bills. Uh, that type of work can happen as well. Uh, again, Wild Aid is on the demand side. As we say, when the buying stops, the killing can too. If you know of anyone, you can make this, you, you engage in discussions with your uh, friends, your colleagues, 
uh, people at various restaurants. You can bring the subject up, uh, engage in that type of conversation. Uh, this is, in fact, one of the most important issues of our time. Uh, we have a, an obligation to future generations. I don't want my children's children growing up and asking, you know, what was a rhino? What was a tiger? Uh, you know, what's this video of a tiger about? You know, Daddy, did you did you ever see a tiger in the wild? Something like that. That would be an absolute uh, tra tragedy, and uh, would encourage anyone who's like-minded to take the time, take the effort, and make a difference. Yeah, and as long as you're promoting Wild Aid, I'll promote the Bighorn Institute out in Palm Desert, California. I sit on that board, and I have for the last 25 years. It's an organization that is. Uh, the only federally chartered recovery center in the United States for uh, peninsular bighorn sheep, the very majestic and charismatic uh, bighorn. And they are definitely in need of funds. Uh, you can find their uh, website at bighorninstitute.org. Uh, our executive director is Jim DeForge. We work with the United States Bureau of Land Management, United States Fish and Wildlife Service, and the California Department of Fish and Game where we annually capture um, bighorn sheep in the wild, uh, bring them into the institute. We have two pens, a 30-acre pen and a 7-acre pen, and then um, sample blood and determine what it is that's causing the, uh, the species to die off and working on finding a vaccine and immunization for, for them. And because of the success of our program, We've also had, we also have a breeding program, kind of like the California condor program down at the San Diego Zoo, and we will release animals back into the wild, and um, population dropped in the Coachella Valley area to about 82 sheep, and it's now back up to 300, over 300, uh, in large part due to the efforts of the Institute. So if you're uh, enamored with bighorn sheep and with the tiny, beautiful little lambs that um, get born every year... That's a good organization to support, too. Well, Craig, that just sounds like a great organization, and congratulations on your work. And again, I think that emphasizes what one person can do. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, Jim DeForge, back in 1982, was doing a, uh, a work on his doctoral program at the University of uh, California, Davis, and was at the side of the road trying to save a lamb. And one of the founding board members found him. Uh, they saved the lamb with the help of Dr. Lawrence Cohn from Eisenhower Medical Center. He used to be Gerald Ford's uh, doctor. And from that one incident, uh, the Institute has sprung up and it's been in existence for 25 years. And it's really gone a long way to help save that species in the, in the, in the desert area right here in California. We're really proud of it. Yep, as you should be. Well, thank you very much, David, for participating in today's show. That's going to wrap it up. Uh, I'll remind our listeners that they can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Talk Network podcasts. You can go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on the West Legal Ed Center. And you can also find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes as well as Lawyer to Lawyer. And we'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.